Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Totally Driven Entertainment. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Bareback Facts. Thanks for tuning in again for those of you who came back. Um, feel free to call in anytime, 718-508-9883 to ask questions or just to converse with me. This is Dallas Duclo bringing you today. We're going to be talking about communism. Now, I know last week we talked about Achilles and we talked about some mythology, but I figured today we wanted to talk about something a little bit relevant. Uh, We always hear this term thrown around. So what does it mean? Where does it come from? How do we distinguish it from other ideologies? That's what we're going to be talking about today. So first off, I want to start by defining communism for you guys because it is a very important term that you guys need to know. Uh, People need to understand uh, what separates this from other socioeconomic ideas. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Communism itself is defined as a theory advocating the elimination of private property or alternatively defined as a doctrine that refers to a totalitarian system of government in which a single authoritarian party controls state-owned means of production. Uh, It's also defined as a final stage of society in Marxist theory in which the state has withered away and economic goods are distributed equitably. Now, I know I just threw a whole lot of terminology at you guys, so we're going to backtrack. We're going to talk a little bit about where this idea of communism comes from so you can gain a better understanding of what it means. So first off, I want to go back a little ways Oftentimes, uh, it's best to uh, start from the very beginning, right, and work our way forward. So communism uh, is a term that was first coined and defined in its modern definition by a French philosopher and writer named Victor de Coupier. Uh, He wrote a book in 1777 called The Project des Communautes Philosophes, and it pushes the philosophy of the Enlightenment uh, to principles which he lived up to during most of his life uh, in the vast side of of Provence. Now, Uh, This book itself is seen by many as the cornerstone of communist philosophy as he defines the lifestyle as a commune or a communal and advises to share all economic and material products between the inhabitants of the commune so that all may benefit from everyone's work. Now, this is the beginning. This is sort of the framework, the idea that everybody is going to put into this pot and we're all going to benefit from one another. So everybody's going to put in and everybody's going to take out. Sounds good, right? Sounds really good. At first, okay, so then we have, um, from there, we have other people who sort of come through uh, and change and, and develop this ideology. Uh, we have uh, individuals uh, who take this concept and evolve it further. Uh, one of those individuals is a man by the name of Karl Marx. Now, Karl Marx uh, is considered by many historians to be communism's most zealous uh, and intellectual intellectual advocate. His comprehensive writings on the subject essentially lay the foundation for later political leaders, uh, most notably 
we have Vlad, we have Lenin, and of course Mao Zedong uh, to impose communism on more than 20 countries. So Marx himself was born in Prussia, which is uh, in Trier, Prussia, which is now part of Germany, in 1818, and studied philosophy at the universities in Bonn and Berlin, earning his doctorate in Jena at the age of 23. Um, his early radicalism, first as a member of the Young Hegelians, and then as an editor of the newspaper, of the newspaper suppressed for its derisive social and political content, preempted any career aspirations in academia, and forced him to flee to Paris in 1843. Uh, so right off the bat, we can see that Marx is kind of a, uh, he's kind of a hellraiser first time. And I'm going to give you guys some perspective uh, as well on why communism might sound uh, like a like an appealing idea uh, to some people. So we'll, we'll get to that as well. Now, it was uh, then after fleeing to Paris that Marx was able to cement his lifelong friendship with his friend uh, Friedrich Engels, another philosopher of the time, big name. Uh, and in 1849, Marx would move to London where he would be forced to go after Again, causing a lot of unrest in France, and he continued to study and write, drawing heavily on works written by uh, David Ricardo and Adam Smith, and he would die in London in 1883, somewhat impoverished. Uh, much of his life, he relied on Engels for, for financial support, so it's no wonder they were such good friends. Now, uh, it's at the request of the Communist League that Marx and Engels co-authored their most famous work together, which is the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848. And it's a call to arms for the proletariat. Uh, in it, we hear the, the uh, we hear, hear such things such as the beans of production and and uh, workers uniting. So we have workers of the world unite. The manifesto set down the principles on which communism was to evolve. So Marx held that the theory was a series of class struggles between owners of capital, which were capitalists, and workers, the proletariat. As wealth became more concentrated in the hands of a few capitalists, he thought the ranks of an increasingly dissatisfied proletariat would swell, leading to bloody revolution and eventually a classless society. So the end goal uh, is a society in which everybody is contributing to this one pot, and we're all taking based on our need. And we, so we're all going to put into this pot. This sounds a lot like what taxes are for. You all pay in and everybody gets something back. Um, but it goes a step further because we get to talk about this idea of the control of the means of production. What is the control of the means of production? For those of you who don't understand what the means of production are, this is a very complicated aspect of communism for many people. They don't seem to understand what does that mean when you say the means of production. The means of production are the resources that allow people to produce products, raw materials, um, factories, facilities, extra money, the, the idea that there is capital that you have that you can invest in things. This is the mean, these are all things that are means of production. For those of you uh, not quite as familiar with the late 19th century, particularly in Europe, it's a fascinating time in which we have the uh, rise of sort of a middle class in many places. We see, it, we see the rise in, of a burgeoning middle class in Germany. We see the rise of a middle class in France. Uh, and, and in several other places throughout Europe, the Netherlands, Denmark, all these places are seeing a middle class of people who before had really no power. Uh, many of them never owned any property, and now, for the first time ever, they have the ability to own property, but they still don't have the same rights as nobles, nobles who have had property for generations, people that have been rich forever uh, because their daddy passed them a title. And there's a lot of resentment between these groups of people during this time. So we have 
the rise of this middle class who is now for the first time ever able to access an education because they have money. Before, you, if, you, if you were educated, it was only because mommy and daddy paid for it. Um, you couldn't get an education during this time. We take that for granted. There wasn't really uh, a need for many people to get educated, so to speak, during this time period because you were working and everybody worked. And you, if your dad was a shoemaker, guess what? You were a shoemaker. And there really wasn't any busting out of that. You were in the class you were in, and there really wasn't any uh, sense that you could get out of it. It was a very stratified society in which you couldn't really rise. Um, you couldn't get out of it because the nobles had all the money. They had all the power. They had all the influence. They got to make the law. They got to decide everything. And even when you move towards democracy, even, these, even when you start moving towards systems of democracy, it's still the wealthier men who get to make all the decisions. We talk about uh, you know, the suffrage of women's rights, but we also got to take in, keep in consideration that the average man, even the average man, didn't have any rights, really, to speak of for a long, long time. It's only during this period in which we have this rising burgeoning middle class in these places that people start to actually get these rights. Um, now, communism itself gets a very bad rap, uh, and this comes from the United States and, and Russia's little Cold War that we had for 50-some-odd years, right? And everybody was told growing up, communism bad, communism bad. You don't want any of that over here. That's, that's bad. That's bad. That's scary. You don't want that over here. Socialism, that's evil. You don't want that. That's scary, right? We were all told this growing up. Well, as we dig deeper into communism and socialism, you'll find that some of the ideas uh, that come out of socialism and communism as we go forward in this, you're going to find that some of these ideas are ideas we already we already now use. Uh, so let's let's take a that was just to give you guys a little context into the kind of society we're dealing with. This is the this is the background, the backdrop from where communism springs. So uh, it's become rather fashionable now to think that Marx was not mainly an economist, but instead integrated various disciplines such as economics, sociology, political science, history, and so on into his philosophy. Um, but most, most people uh, have found, uh, particularly scholars and particularly, is that um, Marx was very concerned with economics. Uh, he was not really all that concerned with government uh, or you know, social classes even. He was really concerned about economics. He was fascinated by the entire concept of, of economics. Um, he, was, he was fascinated by the labor theory of value, decreasing rates of profit, uh, and increasing concentration of wealth. These are major components of what Marx was thinking about. These are the things that helped him sort of come up with his reimagining of communism. Uh, so when we, as we move forward, uh, you can't talk about a, a conversation of communism must not uh, take place without talking about Karl Marx because he is a major contributor uh, to its rise, to its prominence. Now, before we move any further, I want to explain some differences between communism and socialism because these two are often conflated together. And they're not the same thing. Um, this, is, this is a tremendous opportunity for us to talk about something that people just throw around. This is, this is a great chance for you guys. So we talked about what communism is. And when I read the definition for socialism, guys, when I tell you this definition of socialism, you're going to think this sounds really close to communism. But we're going we're gonna to get past that together. So socialism itself is defined as any of various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods. 
it's also decide, it's also defined as a system or condition of society in which the means of production are owned and controlled by the state and in which there is no private property. Uh, it's a stage of society in Marxist theory that is considered to be transitional between capitalism and communism and distinguishes by unequal distribution of goods and pay according to work done. Now, when we when we look at this definition, you you, you look at it and it says, sounds a lot like communism. But socialism is a step. It is not the end goal. Communism is this idea that we can reach this utopian society in which there is no need for a government. Everybody is paying into this system together. We're all in it together. We're a utopian society in which everybody is working, everybody's contributing, and we're all gonna get we're all gonna be take care and be taking care of each other. It takes a village, uh, is the idea you need to think about when you think of communism. So you've heard it you've heard it said before, it takes a village, right, to raise to raise a child, it takes a village. It takes a village to raise a society, um, so to speak, is the idea of communism. We're all gonna we're all gonna chip in, we're all gonna put in money in the pot and everybody's gonna take out the same amount. It's all gonna work out. We're all gonna be doing the same the same thing. We're all gonna do what's best for the community. This is the idea, the central idea of communism, is that everybody is going to do what's best for the for the, for this for this community. And we're going, to dis, we're going to dissolve this whole idea of the state because the state creates separation. And we all want to be one. But we see this change a great deal as we move forward, um, particularly when we have people who take the theory of communism and interpret it in their own way. And we see socialism here sounds a lot like communism, and it should because it is a step in the direction of communism. Socialism is... The idea, again, that there is a communal ownership of production of the means of production. People have power. In the socialist system, people have power over the means of production. They have control over resources. Things that you once didn't have, you could now have access to. I want to put this into perspective for you a little bit better, because I know that this is very confusing. When I say the communal ownership, of the means of production, imagine that only one person controls the entire lumber industry. Imagine that only one person can control who, how many trees we cut down a year and who gets the wood. Only one company controls it. Let's just call them Lumber Incorporated. Lumber Incorporated controls all of the trees. They get to decide who cuts down trees, when the trees are cut down, and where the wood goes. They get to decide. They get to name their own price. Now, if one company possesses a monopoly on all wood in the world, they could charge outrageous amounts of money for wood, right? And that sounds great for the guy who's selling wood. But what about the person who needs to build a home? What if you can't afford stone or you can't afford concrete and wood is the only means by which you can build a home? Well, you can imagine how this would be a problem if somebody is charging these exorbitant fees. But what if, what if the community had control over wood? What if everybody in the entire country could control how many trees were cut down? What if you could cut down your own tree in your own yard and use its wood because it's in your yard? But even better, let's step, take it a step further. What if nobody owned the trees? What if they were just there for the taking for all of us? And when we needed wood, we could just go cut wood 
and whatever wood we had left over would just go to a, a big pile of wood that other people could take from when they needed wood. That's what we're getting at here. The idea that the community now has power over resources, whereas before we had individuals who had power over resources. If somebody needed metal, they had to go to specific people who had control over iron mines, who had control over these things. You had to go talk to this guy. He would decide whether or not he would sell you what you needed. And if he didn't want to sell it to you, you were out of luck. If you couldn't pay the price, you, wouldn't, you were out of luck. So this idea comes from a society, these ideas come out of a society in which only a select few groups of people control the resources. They are the ones holding all the cards. They are the ones who have the money. They have power. They have wealth. They've had wealth. Their family passed them that wealth on and on and on through the generations. And everybody else that's trying to now, you know, start out on their own, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, as it were, and make something out of themselves must now answer to these guys because they have all the, all the power. They have all the wealth. They have all the resources. You can see why this idea of a community, a, a society in which the community, the system, everybody in society has a say, has power over the means of production, sounds a lot more appealing to people who have been essentially poor or unable to break free of being poor because certain people won't let them. Uh, so as we move forward here, kind of my hope that you guys are starting to get a better picture of, of what socialism and communism are. So, you know, what's really going to bake you guys' noodle here in a few minutes is when I tell you that you can have socialism and democracy at the same time. Now, this is another key uh, myth about socialism specifically. Uh, and we'll get back to communism because it is very important that we, that we uh, address both of these things. So one of the core myths about socialism is that when you have socialism, you can't have a democracy. No, 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 no. You can't have democracy because, you know, everybody is going to want to be able to do, you know, everybody, you, you know, everybody gets to make decisions. Now we can't have democracy. But that's simply not the way it works. A democracy and a, in, in a, a socialist democracy can exist. Uh, we've seen uh, glimpses of socialism in, in our own democracy, and I'm going to prove it to you right now. One of the most popular systems, uh, one of the most popular programs in the United States, the idea that we take care of the poor. Uh, another one of our, our major, um, major big-time winners in the United States is the idea that when you serve in the United States military, uh, you get benefits, right? Uh, these benefits come from serving the state. You, serve, you, you give your life in service of the, of the, of the nation, and you're going to be taken care of. You're going to get your education paid for. You're going to get your health care taken care of in, many, in some cases. You're going to have access to resources you would have previously not had access to. Sounds really, sounds really uh, patriotic and great when we talk about it. But that's a socialist ideology. That is a socialist idea. The idea that you serve the state and the state benefits you, that is a socialist idea. Because that is what socialism is all about. We all pay in for the betterment of the community, and then the community takes care of you for you paying in. So you do your service to the community, and the, the community doesn't forget that. They take care of you. That is, uh, at its core, a socialist idea. That is a socialist value. 
Uh, so when people tell me, uh, Dallas, we don't have socialism in the United States. We, we don't need that junk. We don't need that stuff. Uh, well, you better go back and, and reevaluate because uh, some of the most popular programs in the United States that we tout as you know, being a progressive nation, these are things that are, make you progressive. These are things that make you, uh, you know, uh, a more modern nation. You might want to go back and take a look at what you're talking about because a lot of people are going to tell you, oh, well, uh, you don't need that socialism trash. You don't need that garbage. Well, uh, you know what? A lot of our soldiers in the military would probably have a problem with you saying, well, we don't need those socialist programs because they benefit directly from those socialist programs you like to bag on so much. They are a direct part of one of those programs, a national military that has members in it that get benefits, uh, honestly, from, from serving their country. They get these benefits, and that is a socialist ideology Right there, the idea that you serve the state and the state takes care of you in return, that is a socialist idea. And if you don't like that, well, I don't know what to tell you. It's not really uh, whether or not you like it or not. It's, it is a fact. Um, and so people oftentimes conflate these ideas. Uh, social security, that is a socialist policy. The idea that you work uh, your whole life and you get you pay into this fund, and at the end, when, when you've reached a certain age, you now qualify for those benefits. That has social in its name, Social Security. It's a policy that has been adopted in the United States, and we've kept it around for years and years. Now, obviously, not every generation here in the near future is probably going to have Social Security the way that our government likes to dip into it, and you'll hear your grandparents and your parents, depending on your age, complain, oh, I'm never going to see my Social Security now. Well, you know, those are the same, and these same people you're hearing complain about it are complaining about socialism. They, they all people just want free stuff, free stuff. Let me tell you, that's another thing I wanna, I wanna go ahead and, and crush for you guys right now. How many people have heard socialism means free stuff? So, so many people say, oh, I want, I want that socialist democracy. I get free stuff, free stuff. Well, I got news for you. In a socialist society, in a socialist, in a socialist-driven government. Nothing's free. It doesn't matter what kind of government you run under, uh, what kind of economic policies you're putting forth, unless it's the policy of everybody gets free stuff and nobody has to pay for anything, um, you're not getting anything for free. And as socialist democracy, you still don't get anything for free. You still have to pay. Everybody's still paying. The benefits are still there. And I want to go down the line. Here are some more, uh, here are some more things. Uh, that are oftentimes taken for granted. Uh, so people, people don't like communism. They don't like socialism. They don't like these ideas. These ideas sound scary. They don't like it. They don't work. These ideas don't work. But what other things do we get from the rise of socialism in Europe? What things did your ancestors fight for when they were talking about these ideas? Well, let's take a look. We got Social Security. We got a military in which we, we have a military in which people who serve in it get, get government benefits for serving. But what else do you get? Well, here's some other things that your, uh, your ancestors fought for when they were pushing socialism uh, in, their, in their countries. So the eight-hour working day, uh, free public education, and in many cases, universal suffrage, the idea that anybody, can, anybody that uh, is a citizen can vote. Uh, so not just wealthy people get to vote, but you get to vote, and your vote actually matters. It actually counts for something. It actually matters. 
these ideas, you know, now not universal suffrage specifically, uh, because universal suffrage has been fought for under many names. Socialism is just one of the one of the many theories that that posits it as something we need to be fighting for. But if you look at this, an eight-hour working day and free public education, these are things in the United States that we just say, duh, not everybody gets an eight-hour working day. Some people work more than others. This is true. But just imagine that you're a 10-year-old kid and you have to work in a factory 15 hours a day. Um, you know, people, we take that for granted. We, we, take these, we take these things for granted. We take the fact that we've got a public education system that your kid can go to and get an education and he doesn't have to pay for it because your taxes are paying for it. We don't, we don't, we take that for granted. And this is yet another thing that comes out of this whole theory of socialism. And yet, we say, oh, well, we don't need those socialist ideas. We, those socialists, those socialists want free stuff. Well, you don't want your kid to get an education? You don't want your kid to have the right to vote one day, whether or not he's born into a wealthy family or not? You don't want your kid to have the ability to vote for who represents him in the government? You don't want your kid to have the opportunity to work a work day when he gets older that doesn't involve him working 18-hour days where his boss doesn't have to give him breaks, doesn't have to give him a lunch break, doesn't have to let him go home at a decent time. You want to live in that kind of society? Because let me tell you, I don't. Um, now, I don't want you to think that I'm just saying this is the greatest system in the world. It has its fault. We're going to get to that. Um, but this is, these are some of the ideas that are positive by socialism that we can't take for granted. Okay, we, we, we cannot take these things for granted. Whenever somebody starts bashing socialism, they start talking bad about it, most of the time they don't have any idea that these ideas come from this theory of socialism. These are ideas that people who were proponents of socialism thought were basic human rights. These were ideas people fought for. Um, so it's very important we don't forget these, these core concepts. Now, I, I want to return again to this, this idea of communism. And I want to return again to what makes it different from socialism, right? Communism, we return to the definition. It's a doctrine, right? Theory advocating the elimination of private property and a system in which goods are owned in common and are available to all as needed. But it's also considered the final stage of a society in Marxist theory in which the state is withered away and economic goods are distributed equitably. However, what does communism often lead to? A totalitarian system of government in which a single authoritarian party controls state-owned means of production. And where have we seen that before? A government that controls all of the resources. Where have we seen that before? Well, we've seen it in the Soviet Union, the USSR. And we saw it in China under Mao, uh, in which we have two dictators. So communism can be separated from socialism in that the people in, in a socialist system, it is all about the people. The people have the power. We take it a step further. They not only have a power over the means of production, they not only have power over resources, but they have influence in government. This is very this is not a side note in a socialist system. This is a core concept in socialism. 
everybody's voice matters. Everybody's voice counts. Um, and, and that's why you can have socialism and democracy at the same time. And, in fact, we do have it in some places in the world, and those places are not doing too bad, really. Um, you know, we do have these things that can exist in the same, at the same time, but here's what you can't have. You can't have communism and democracy at the same time. It cannot be juggled very well. And the reason why is because oftentimes when we have a communist government, we have one party that controls everything or one individual who ends up controlling everything. And a key example of this comes on the heels of the October Revolution in 1917 in Russia, which allows Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks to take power. Um, And they take complete control of the government. Uh, And from there... They, they have people who just decide they're not going to leave power. Um, w- later on, the party stays in control following World War I, and then we have the Great Purge of 1937 and 1938. Uh, you know, they stay, this party stays in control well into the Second World War and afterward, in which Joseph Stalin is still, att- is still in control, and he attempts to destroy any possible opposition within the Communist Party and outside of it. So any of his political opponents, he eliminates them. So we have – this is a major problem with communism. It allows for one group to come in and take over. Uh, It is an extreme form of socialism in which we turn over – you know, power may turn over to the people, but which people? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And in the case of the revolution in Russia, we know exactly which people. It's, Vlad, it's Vladimir Lenin and his, and his Bolsheviks that get the power. And like any system of – like any socioeconomic policy and any system of government, there are flaws. What are some key flaws within communism? This is one of them. Uh, one of the major flaws is that a party can rise to prominence within – within this system and take complete control, it often leads to an authoritarian form of government in which one group has all the power, one person has all the power maybe. Uh, In the case of Joseph Stalin, he was an absolute ruler. He was a dictator uh, of his country, and he ruled through communism. Mao, uh, Mao Zedong, was a dictator in China. He ruled with absolute power. He had control over not only the means of production, he had control over all the resources, but he didn't just have control over that. He had control over the media. He had control over who could, who could run. Uh, and we often see that communism also tries to make it under the guise of democracy, in which you have a dictator who's like, yeah, we're going to have fair and free elections. But we're not really going to have fair and free elections because I'm the only guy on the ballot, and you're going to vote for me because that's the only choice you have. Uh, so we can see that is one downside to communism, and that is that it does open the door. Uh, for tyrants to rise to power. But that can happen in any system of government. That's very important that we, that we remember that, is that it's not just communism. What other downsides do we have? Well, uh, in, a po- in, in complete opposite uh, system, in which we have uh, a more market-driven economy, capitalism, uh, if you will, uh, there's a lot more wiggle room for people within a free market capitalist uh, economy in which uh, it it encourages entrepreneurship and the government's maybe not as involved. There may be limited government involvement in economics. This is the idea of a free market economy in which you have people who are entrepreneurs who don't want 
government involvement in their business and are able to sort of do their own thing, right? They're able to make profits. They're able to uh, expand their business without really much interference in, in their day-to-day life. Now, it sounds great. However, uh, one thing that we don't talk about when it comes to free market economy uh, or free market capitalist economy is that, you know, this idea that we posit with this side, with, with free market economy is that this is, a, this is the opportunity. This is where your ingenuity can take you places. Well, yes, uh, your ingenuity can take you places, but how many people uh, is it going to make rich? How many people is it going to take place? So you can see that uh, within communism, you know, oftentimes only, only the people in government have power. Only the people in government can become wealthy. Uh, and there is many examples of corruption within within uh, Stalin's government, many examples of corruption uh, within Vladimir Lenin's government in which you have uh, people who are in government who have a lot of money, right? And people are, you know, the, pe- the, the population, the major population, the people, the people themselves, the people of Russia are not being elevated by this system. They're not benefiting. And why aren't they benefiting? Because the people at the top are still not allowing wealth to make it down there. They are still not taking care of the people. Uh, so corruption is, is something that can derail any system of government. Any socioeconomic policy can still be derailed by government. Free market, free market can still trample uh, the masses. I'll give, you, I'll give you key examples. How could a free market economy, which is essentially and ostensibly what the United States has, we have a free market capitalist economy, um, you know, sort of limited interference by the government in, in businesses in many cases. But how is that? What's the downside, right? Uh, well, with a government-owned business, the government can step in. Uh, they, they regulate that business, right? Under communism, businesses are regulated by the government. And unfair wages, unsafe work practices, uh, you know, Stealing from the company, that doesn't really, you know, that could happen, but it's less likely. But in a free market economy, people can abuse the system too. We have seen it with companies like Enron. Just within, you know, just within our lifetime, we've seen it, right? Companies in which we have CEOs and and heads of the company who are stealing money from their employees, and they basically get off scot-free. They take all this money and they say, oh, oh, well, I've got all this money. I can get away with it. No judgment. It's free market economy. Uh, you know, I'm just being an entrepreneur here. And they run off of the money, and then everybody else is left holding the bag, right? If you worked at Enron before they went under, uh, you didn't benefit from them going under. You lost your job. You lost your home. You lost everything. Uh, but if you were one of the head honchos in Enron, either the CEO or the CFO or one of the major executives, well, you were okay, right? Because you've been stealing money this whole time. And, and maybe a couple of you get caught, maybe, but more than likely not. Uh, under communism, we have the opposite. That's a major weakness, though, of a free market economy, is that we have people who can get in charge of this company and they can, get a, they, they can take away all this money. They can take the money and run, right? They can leave uh, the workers holding the bag and, and your employees are just left without any chance of really being able to do anything about it. Uh, this is not the case uh, in, a, in a communist group because many of the businesses are controlled by the government. Uh, and if you're stealing money, 
from the government, and you think you're going to get away with it from a guy uh, who is managing everything from a government that is very much in your in your privacy, very much uh, all about surveillance and knowing what's going on and, and has infiltrated every aspect of society, you're not getting away with that. It's not going to happen. So while we may say, oh, well, communism doesn't allow for this uh, freedom of the spirit to emerge, it doesn't allow for entrepreneurship to thrive, the regulation of the government in this case, in this particular instance, can be beneficial to the workers because you don't have to worry so much about some major executive deciding, I'm going to embezzle, you know, $600 million, and I'm just going to run off with it, and, you know, to hell with my employees. Uh, they can just, you know, try their hand at the job market. You don't really have to worry so much about that because there is more of an accountability uh, in this system of, of government and this socioeconomic policy that we have with communism because the government is is regulating this business. And so while there can be corruption within the government, even in a communist society, we can, we've seen corruption, um, businesses in a, in a communist country are much more heavily regulated. They are much more, uh, they are that much more under the scrutiny of the government. Um, practices such as embezzlement and, uh, you know, shifting, you know, stealing from the benefits of your employees, that dog doesn't hunt in, in a communist country because in those, in those places, you're under a lot more scrutiny. You're heavily surveilled. Your company is being, in many cases, regulated by the government. Uh, maybe the government even owns it. Uh, and so you're, if you're being put in charge of that, you are not really much of an executive, so to speak, as any more than you are just sort of an officer, uh, a, an overseer, if you will, of the company. You are, your job is to make sure the company is running smoothly. Uh, so that is another key difference. Uh, and that's sort of the strength, one of the strengths of communism is that there is that sort of safety net. Um, so, you know, it's not really... Uh, it doesn't really sound great, right? But what other things make communism sound so appealing to these people? Well, if we circle back to what I was talking about before, when I talked about people during this time who didn't really have a lot of say in government, they didn't really have a lot of say uh, in, in their wages. Well, if everybody's making you know, roughly the same thing for doing roughly the same work now, and, and they're making a livable wage, uh, you know, even if everybody was getting paid in, in bread and water, let's just take, for instance, let's just say they're not getting paid a wage anymore. Let's just say that instead of getting a wage, your house is paid for and you get, you get groceries for the week, every week. Now, this isn't exactly how communism, uh, how a communist government would handle things. But let's just say that this is, for, for the sake of argument, let's just say this is what's going on. Let's just say you go to work every day, you punch in, you work your eight-hour shift. At the end of the week, you get, you get your weekly groceries. Everybody gets their weekly groceries. Everybody gets their, you know, everybody's got their own house and they've got their own things. And it's all the same, all the way across the board. Everybody's got the same thing. You all work in the same job. If you're a factory worker, you're all working the same thing. If you're a doctor, you guys are all getting the same thing based on what you're doing. Now, one of the, one of the uh, misconceptions of this is that one of the, another major misconception of communism is that 
Doctors will make the same amount of money as guys that dig ditches. That's preposterous, and that's just foolishness. That is nothing, that is nonsensical. Um, because if you listen to, if you read into Marxist theory, it's each according to their own contribution and each according to their need. Uh, so you, if you're a doctor, you're going to be incredibly valuable uh, under communism. You're still going to be incredibly valuable. Your knowledge of the field of medicine still puts you ahead above the people around you. Are you going to make $700,000 a year? Probably not. But you're going to be in good shape. You're still not going to be hurting. You're still going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, you're still you're still going to make more than the guy that digs a ditch. Let's not be crazy. Are you going to make an exorbitant amount of money? No. But then again, you know, you're probably not going to need to. Uh, because, again, with this much government in your, in your business, this much uh, emphasis on the control of the means of production, and this much emphasis on making sure the community is taken care of, you're an integral part. You're a vital part of the community if you're a doctor, right? You have skills that other people in the community don't have. You keep the community going. Uh, you make them healthier. You're going to be valued by the government. You're going to be in good shape. So the idea that everybody gets the same wage in government, that's, that's not the way that it works. Uh, any more than it's the way that it works with socialism, that everybody gets free stuff. Free stuff! Uh, oftentimes I hear uh, main, major critics of socialism and communism, that's their major criticism. Uh, that, oh, well, it doesn't encourage people to work. It doesn't uh, give you free stuff. It, you know, you, all you get is free stuff. Everybody just wants a free ride, free ride. Uh, in many cases, if we look at those benefits that I talked about, this idea that, okay, if I serve my country, I get benefits for serving my country. Or, you know, how about I work 50 years, I retire, I've worked every day of my life for 50 years, and now I want to retire. I should have the ability to do that. Um, those are, you know, those are benefits uh, that are that come out. Those are things that people who call themselves socialists fought for. Uh, and so when you when you think about that, when you think about these are so these are socialist programs. Uh, again, this is that's you know, social security is not free. That's not free. You put you put in a lifetime of work. You've earned that. That is you earned that. My grandfather himself personally. Uh, and I know this from experience. My grandfather served in the United States military. My grandfather also worked up until he was 78 years old. Uh, and if he wants to take his Social Security out, he served his country, and he's worked for, you know, his whole life. He's been working since he was a kid, and he's 78, 78 years old. He earned that Social Security. He earned those benefits. Uh, serving serving this country, and so for me to hear people say, uh, you know, oh, how you know they just want free ride. How dare we keep these programs around? How dare we keep you know we don't need these socialist programs. These socialist programs uh, give people free stuff. Those those people earned those things. You know, my grandmother, another key, you know, just personal experience. My grandmother was sick every single day of her life before she died, and she worked every single day of her life before she died until she couldn't work anymore. And when she took out her Social Security, you know, even she, not under, you know, at the time she didn't understand that this was a socialist program, but she was very, very much against, you know, communism, socialism. No, 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 that's bad. But then you explain, you know, you explain to your grandmother, you worked 
50 years, right? Yeah. You've been paying in Social Security, right? Yeah. You've been paying into Medicare? Yeah. And those are socialist programs. Well, well, I earned them. Well, just because they're socialist programs doesn't mean you didn't earn them. Uh, you know, that, that's one of the things that uh, is really something we need to distinguish. Um, this is a myth. The idea that socialism itself, which is, which is a step towards communism, posits that everybody just gets a free ride. And you hear people talk about socialism, and, and you hear somebody say, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, it's not free if you earned it, right? It's not free. Just like you don't get free money at the end of the week when you work your job. If I don't go to work, my bills don't get paid, right? This idea that, oh, it's a free ride, and then people will say, oh, well, you know, what about, what about welfare? What about that? And, you know, when you think about welfare, it is a socialist policy. Welfare is another idea that comes from socialism. Another idea that comes from this theory uh, that eventually leads to this communism, this utopian society in which everybody's taken care of according to their need, according to their contribution to the community. But what about uh, these people that aren't working? Well, I, and I know the major argument for many people is, well, if you don't work, you don't deserve these things. My argument against that is, uh, you know, Okay, you, you say that welfare is free, that we have to pay for it, you know, everybody else pays for it, and these people don't work. Uh, but there are a lot of people on welfare that cannot work, uh, you know, handicapped people, uh, incredibly sick people, uh, you know, single mothers who, who can't maybe, who are maybe not qualified to work high-paying jobs, or maybe because they're raising their kid can't afford to. Uh, maybe they didn't have the money uh, to get an education. Now, I know a lot of people would say, well, that's their personal choice. You know, blah, blah, blah. That's their choice. They, no, I didn't choose it for them. I, don't, I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to take care of them. Well, you know, what I say to that is, then if you don't have to take care of these people, I shouldn't have to pay taxes to uh, pay into your Social Security. I shouldn't have to pay taxes to uh, take care of you if you get hurt. Because your tax money goes to these things. Every time you pay taxes, the government gives it up as they see fit. Now, do we know where all of our tax money goes? No. We don't know where it all goes, and I'm quite confident uh, that our government never tells us where all of it's going to go, and we'll never know what they do with all of it. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's, one, you know, that's one of the drawbacks uh, to putting your money in the hands of people uh, who are politicians uh, who are in control of the government and have control over this vast sum of money. Uh, but at the same time, if we're going to cherry pick, you know, you want to cherry pick things, let's cherry pick it. Okay, I don't, you know, if I don't want my tax money going to support those people. I don't want them to go. Okay, well, if everybody else does it, what if everybody else doesn't want their tax money to go towards supporting you when you can't work anymore? Because policies that take care of people when they go get bad, you know, get health-wise, they go under, you know, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, those are those are socialists. Those are government funded. And if you get cancer tomorrow and you don't have good health care and you need Medicare, but nobody else wants to pay it, you're going to die of cancer. Simple as that. You're not going to get those treatments because you can't afford them. And without that, without that help, without that system in place to help you out, you're going to die. And if you're the primary breadwinner from your family, guess what? They're going to suffer from from that. So when we sit around and we complain, you know, no system is perfect. 
No system is ever going to have all the answers. But for for us to be so critical of of these things and not really understand the implications of our criticism is a problem. These are major problems. Uh, you know, you can't you can't just criticize criticize these things and not understand they're important. It, it's one thing if you don't okay, you don't you don't have to like you don't have to like welfare. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like the idea of welfare, but you do need to understand it. You need to understand why we have it. Is it, is it something that should be regulated? Well, probably. But then again, any benefits you receive from any from any government should probably be regulated, and in fact, they are in many cases regulated. It's to what extent they're regulated. But you know, we need to step away from this idea that social programs that benefit the community are the enemy. Because sometimes you need a helping hand. Sometimes you need some help. And and I would argue that there's people out there who have more than earned their benefits. You know, I'm gonna be the first I'm gonna be the first person to stand up and say, you're not taking away uh, you know, the health benefits of soldiers who serve the country, they put in their time, they deserve those benefits. If you work 50 years and you want to retire and you're old and you're, you're getting decrepit and you can't work anymore, you should be able to do that. By paying into Social Security and paying into your own retirement fund, hopefully you're doing that. You should be. You might want to plan that out because uh, so, Social Security may not be there. Uh, but, you know, people – they're going to fight against this idea that, oh, they, you know, we, we need to fight against it. We need to get away from that. Um, you know, this is – you have to understand the importance of these programs. You have to understand the importance and the implications of getting rid of these programs. You can't just ax everything. Um, you know, I, I don't think – People understand in many cases the importance and the significance of, of the things that they're complaining about in many cases. You, you have people complaining. They toss around these ideas of socialism, that's socialism, that's communism, that's this, that's this. But they don't often understand what the term itself means. What does it refer to? Socialism and communism, I think we've established now, are not the same thing. Um, you know, communism is just an, is the, is the more extreme version of socialism. It is it is as far left as you can go on the spectrum. Okay, it's as far left. It's the leftist equality. It's the leftist uh, equivalent of authoritarianism. It's it's as left as you can go with an authoritarian twist, it's like making a martini. Okay, you get uh, you get you can go very far left. You get all these social programs, but then you get a dictator. It's the twist. Uh, and on the other side of the spectrum, on the on the right, if you go right far enough, guess where you end up? You end up with fascism. And what do you get in fascism? Well, you get all the uh, government regulation that you wanted with the uh, with the right wing. But then you get a dictator. So you see, you know, fascism itself is the most extreme form of conservatism. You know, it, it still leads to extreme, extreme, uh, it still leads to an extreme form of government. 
it still leads to a government in which you have maybe one or a few people in power. They just have different ideas than the people on the left. And honestly, can you really say that fascism is any better than being in, in, under a communist society? Not really. Uh, we can look at fascism at a later time, but if you look at history, uh, you know, I'll give you a key example of, of a fascist regime. The Nazis were a fascist regime, and we all know what they did, right? We all saw what they did to uh, over 11 million people, right? Over, you know, we, we all saw the, uh, the havoc that they wrought upon the world and, and upon the innocents. Uh, so, you know, we, we decry communism. Uh, because of Stalin and the gulags and all the all the terrible things, and we decry communism because uh, of the Cold War, because this, this this paranoia that oh my God, if, if you if communism spreads but gets over here, we're all going to be we're all going to have to fall in line, we're all going to have to wear these uh, you know uniforms, and we're all going to be part of one society, and it's going to be horrible, and uh, you know we're you know communism's going to take everything over, and uh, we we take out the human element when we think like this. Uh, you know, so during the Cold War, we had that huge Red Scare, right? Red Scare, and we get people, we, we get people here that are saying things like, "We're, we're gonna, we're, we're all gonna fall under this, this spell of communism. We're all gonna be part of this, this world plan." It's, it's this widespread fear that breaks out of a potential rise of communism or radical leftism in the United States. And we have multiple. We have the first Red Scare, and then we have the second one, which occurs immediately after the Second World War. And and this leads to a, a Cold War, uh, you know. But the first one comes in nineteen, you know, in the ni- in nineteen seventeen and nineteen twenty, and we have people under interrogation. Everybody's concerned about, oh my God, you know, we got Woodrow Wilson, and he he passes the Anti Art Anarchist Act, Sedition Act of nineteen eighteen to protect wartime morale, uh, deporting putatively undesirable political people. All because they all because we're worried. Oh my God! If if communism comes over here, what will we do? We'll all fall under its spell, and we'll all be forced to be communists. Preposterous! Because if you look at the if you look just at the key example of Russia, in which we have the Bolshevik Revolution, this, the Bolshevik, Re- Bolshevik Revolution starts out as a people's revolution. The people of Russia were tired of the czar. They were tired of a king, a monarch, ruling over them with an iron fist and not giving them the right to own property. These people were incredibly poor. They didn't have any access to the things that we take for granted, an education. They didn't have access uh, to private capital. They were poor. They saw communism as the opportunity. They saw the ideas of, of the communist uh, Bolsheviks as their chance to finally be rid of an oppressive government, to finally have an opportunity to advance further than they had previously been able to. When we look at communism through this lens of, oh my gosh, it's a better, it's a better alternative to being ruled by a king who literally lets me do nothing that I want to do, who controls basically every aspect of my life, who makes me uh, live in squalor, you know, Say what you will, but that sounds a lot, you know, having a government in which you have some say sounds a lot better than having a government in which you have no say. Uh, so you can see why 
uh, and I wanted to circle back to it. You can now see why communism was a popular idea, and it takes it, and we'll take it a step further. One other major reason that the United States was so concerned about communism, uh, particularly after the Second World War, is the Civil Rights Movement. Because many people within the Civil Rights Movement uh, that emerged during this time, this new Civil Rights Movement in which we have uh, individuals of the African American and other minority communities who are coming forward saying, you know what, I fought for this country, or I've, or I've I'm an equal, I, I deserve equal citizenship here. I deserve the same rights as everybody else around me. They go over to Europe. They experience, uh, for the first time, they experience what it's like to be treated as an equal to other people. The experience of these African-American soldiers uh, is something you can read about in a book called A Breath of Freedom. Uh, I recommend this book. Uh, it's, it's one that you, you might want to look at. It gives you tremendous insights into one of the major concerns of the United States government during this time. Uh, this, <clears throat> the Civil Rights Struggle, African-American GIs by, Mark, by uh, Maria Hahn. And um, it, it's the, the title is A Breath of Freedom, the civil rights struggle, American, African-American GIs, and Germany. For the first time ever, these German soldiers, these African-American soldiers went to Germany, and the people there were white, and they treated them with respect, and they, 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 they could walk down the street, they could go into a coffee shop and eat, and nobody, n- nobody told them to leave. People, people actually treated them like decent human beings. And then many of these guys went to East Germany, and they saw what, as, as the communists began to take power there, as the Soviet Union began to solidify its power in Eastern Germany, some of these guys stayed over there, and they saw what these communist party leaders were talking about. Everybody here is the same. We don't see race and gender, and none of that matters under communism. We're all part of one solid community. We're all part of one, one community. It doesn't matter where you come from, what color you are when you're here, you're part of the community. We're, we're all cogs in one machine. Now, why does that sound appealing? Why is it that people would see being cogs in one machine, all being the same? Why would that sound who does that sound appealing to? It sounds appealing to people who didn't have the same rights as people they lived next to, the same rights and respect that was attributed to the same guys they were fighting alongside. Uh, There's a famous quote from A Breath of Freedom from a soldier who said, I had to get a lesson in freedom from the Nazis. I had to come fight the Nazis to get a lesson in freedom, to know what being treated like a person felt like. I had to get a lesson in humanity from Nazis. I want you to think about that for a minute. This individual said they had to get a lesson in freedom and humanity from Nazis. Nazis. These are the same people. The Nazis are the same individuals who had targeted the Jews and targeted all these other minority groups. Anybody who resisted them, they targeted the Roma for systematic elimination. And yet, It was the German people, these same German people, many of whom 
were discriminating against these so these different ethnic groups after being defeated and liberated starting to treat these African American soldiers with a respect they had never seen a respect they couldn't get in the land of the free and the home of the brave these guys went over and fought in a brutal war and they're still second class citizens the whole time they fought African American GIs were treated poorly when they were in the United States military. They were treated with disdain. Many, in many cases, they were the first guys that people sent into trenches to, 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 kill, to, to get killed. They were given, in many cases, inferior equipment. And they had to go fight an oppressive regime for freedom, truth in the American, for freedom, justice in the American way. And they don't even get to experience freedom, justice in the American way. And then they're exposed to this. They're exposed to this ideology of communism that says everybody here can be equal. Everybody here is the same. Everybody else, everybody here is part of the machine, part of this one, uh, one unit. We're all one. Now you can see why there is a second red scare in the United States because these same guys come back and they say, those people over there have got it right. The United States government, uh, they heard about this. We have guys like Senator uh, Joseph McCarthy, uh, who, is, who fear mongers and, and talks about uh, the increased fear of popular fear of communist espionage. But this idea, this is the real concern of the United States government, is that these people, these African-American soldiers are going to come back and they're going to say, guys, Communism sounds pretty good. I was just over there in Germany, and they actually treat you like a human being over there. And it's this fear of communism. And this is one of the major historical impacts of communism. If there is a historical impact of communism, this is one of the most important and significant. This fear that communism is going to spread to the United States, this fear that the communists have, have, have a better track record when it comes to human rights because throughout the entire Cold War, the Soviet Union is, is pointing to incidents uh, such as Martin Luther King and his assassination. He is pointing, they are pointing towards the March on Washington, and they say, look, see, the United States, the beacon of freedom in the world, they don't have freedom. Only white people have freedom. This is what made the United States government so paranoid during the Cold War. From, 19, from the 1940s all the way to the, to the, to the 1960s, and even, even in, to a degree into the 80s, there is this huge, huge spitting contest between our government and the Soviet Union. And one of the major things, until we see African Americans get the right to vote and we see women get the right to vote in the United States and we see all these things happen, all of these things are steps along the way, but are, are, are steps towards a progression, a progression of the United States. This is all progressive stuff. This is all good stuff, right? But you have to ask yourself this question. Would we have seen any of those advances if it were not for the fear that communism might spread to the United States? Would we have seen these advances if the United States government officials were not so paranoid that people within the civil rights movement might, might be positing the idea that communism and the overthrow of the United States government 
was better than waiting for equal rights. The fear of communist revolution in the United States was rampant from 1947 until uh, we see these changes. From 1947 all the way into the 60s and 70s, this is a huge concern. This is this is stuff people were. This is stuff your grandparents and your parents, if you're young, if you're my age, were hearing about growing up. This this was a major part of what put the United States in in complete opposition to the Soviet Union. This is one of the major criticisms of the Soviet Union of the United States is that in the United States, in the United States. People aren't free. Only only some people are free. Only some people have rights. Only some people can do things. So if there is a huge historical impact that communism's had on, on the world and, and on history, it's this. It's that it made it forced the United States to start advancing on their policies, particularly in regards to civil rights and, and suffrage. It made the United States start to have to reevaluate the manner in which they were, in which the government and in which people in the United States were perceiving the people around them. It made us have to change our way of thinking because if we hadn't, where would we be today? That's, that's, that's the question. Uh, this, this paranoia, this fear that the United States government could be overtaken internally by a communist revolution is inevitably what leads to many of these social advances within the United States, to many of, this, to, to many of these advances in the United States, in, 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 in this case, in terms of the realm of, of the social and, and society, when we have uh, you know, a push for racial equality, a push for gender equality, that's where these ideas come from. These movements are, spring up during this time. These movements spring up during a period in which the United States face perhaps its biggest political enemy of all time, its biggest philosophical threat. And these movements may not have flourished without that threat looming in the background. Uh, so that is essentially what I would call the overall historical impact of communism. Now we can talk about the major historical impact of communism. Uh, is its effect on the United States and its attitudes, racial equality and gender equality, uh, its, its attitudes towards these things can be seen as being heavily influenced by the propaganda of the Soviet Union and wanting to be the beacon of freedom, wanting to live up to the promise. Uh, and we... We, we, can't, uh, we cannot undervalue that when we talk about communism. Uh, you know, communism may not be the ideal system for everybody. You may not, you may not like it. Uh, you may not agree with it. Uh, just like you may not like socialism or, or maybe fully understand it, you may not like it, you may not agree with it. But you cannot understate the value of its contribution to history, particularly United States history, because it is not something that can be denied. So uh, before I cut off you guys, I want to give you guys a few more sources. I mentioned Breath of Freedom, the Civil Rights Struggle, African-American GIs in Germany, uh, a recent book that, that came out just in 2010, uh, and I think it's been reprinted since then. But it's, it's written by Maria Hahn, and 
and Martin Klimke. Uh, they co-authored it together. Two tremendous scholars. Uh, you really should take a look at this. It's it's a tremendously well done work, um, and it really gives you insight into the minds of citizens from the United States. They're not just African Americans. Uh, you have people, you know, you have people just in general within within many movements, within many civil rights and 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 movements within uh, for many communities in the United States. You can see their their perspective. So this is a this is one that you might take a look at. Um, you might also take a look at Club Red, Vacation Travel and the Soviet Dream. Uh, this is a this is a tremendously well written book. Uh, it's from Diane P. Koenicker uh, of Cornell University and this talks about the rise of the Bolsheviks in Russia, and it talks about the mentality of people in Russia and what they perceived was going to happen after the revolution, uh, what they thought. It talks about the 20s and the 30s uh, and, and the strategies of the Communist Party in Russia and how they were selling and packaging communism to the people. How were they selling it? How was communism so successful in Russia for so long? This book will give you insight into that, and it's relatively easy to acquire. Um, you can, you can probably, I believe, you can download it as an ebook. So all, all of these, these, these two books are would be an invaluable uh, look for you guys. I know it's not going to sound popular. You're probably not going to like it. Uh, some of you, some of you've been listening in, and you're going to say, "Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I still don't like it." Um, but you can also download a copy or go get yourself a copy of the Communist Manifesto. You want to? You don't want? You don't want to take my word for it. You don't want to take my word for what communism means. What does it mean uh, to you? You, you don't want to take my word for it. Download a copy of the Communist Manifesto. You can download one for free. Read it for yourself. You can read it in English. Read it for yourself. See if you can understand this idea. Um, and you can see within it, you can see the you know, little kernels of, of, of socialism in there. But read the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. I, I encourage you guys, take, take the opportunity to examine it for yourself. You know, it's not illegal. You're not, not yet. You're not going to go to prison. Not yet. You know, this isn't uh, fascist Italy. You're not going to go to prison for, for reading it yet. Uh, but something that you might want to take a look at. And then finally, um, finally, uh, I would recommend you take a look at a Gramsci reader uh, edited by David Forgax. Uh, this is the works, uh, the prison, prison works of Antonio Gramsci. He is a uh, Marxist who is imprisoned in fascist Italy. Um, this is his selected writings uh, from 1916 to 1935. Uh, he spends a lot of his time in prison as a political prisoner uh, of the Italian of the Italian regime uh, there, and he has tremendous insight into into the ideas of Karl Marx. If you don't understand the Communist Manifesto, take a look at this. Take a look at this stuff. This is valuable information. These things 
will help you understand. If you still don't like, you don't have to like uh, communism. You don't have to like socialism. You don't have to agree with it, but you should understand them. That's the most important thing. Even if you want, if you want, you can argue against them if you want to. You can argue with me if you want to. I encourage you. But understand these ideas. Understand them. It's very important that you understand these ideas. We need, we need people who understand these ideas. And honestly, they're not as complicated. They're not near as complicated as you might think they are. You take the time to read it for yourself and analyze it. But these, these are a great start for, for anybody that's looking to familiarize themselves with, with socialism. Or anybody that's ever been confused by, by this idea of communism and socialism, these are the places you need to go. Um, but I hope this has been enlightening for you guys. And I, I want you guys to feel free anytime I have my show, go ahead and call in. But that's all I've got for you guys today on on communism and socialism. I hope it makes sense. I hope you guys have gotten a better grasp of these two ideas. I hope they, they're much more understandable. I hope you now have a more grounded grasp. Uh, you have a stronger grasp now, I hope, of the historical context for, for these two ideas and what, what kind of time period they come out of and why were these ideas so appealing and what made these ideas seem like an existential threat to the United States and its sovereignty. Uh, so these these things are all questions I had hoped to answer, and I think we've done that. I think we've, we've answered these questions, and I hope that you guys feel a lot more comfortable with them because you need to be equipped properly to tackle every challenge, and that's the goal of my show. I want to equip you guys to be able to tackle ideas and feel confident that you know what you're talking about, that you uh, can oppose or or substantiate somebody else's argument that you yourself can feel comfortable with these ideas. I'm Dallas Duclo, and this has been the Facts. Thanks for tuning in, and I appreciate all of you uh, who have all of you who have been uh, tuning in with me so far. I hope that uh, you guys are enjoying the show. I'm enjoying doing it. And uh, I will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.